The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles and uh, open up to 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12. Uh, this week brings us to our final stop in 1 Peter, and uh, right here at the end of this epistle, Peter clarifies the purpose for writing this letter. Uh, sometimes you have to work a little bit in uh, some of uh, the, the books of the, the New Testament to determine uh, why the book was written in Old Testament as well, not just the New Testament, but you have to work a little bit uh, to try to determine uh, what's the, the purpose, what's the main purpose for the writing of this book. Uh, but Peter takes all the guesswork out of it. Uh, he makes his purpose very clear. And uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells us why he wrote this book right there in verse 12 of chapter 5, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He lets us know why he wrote this book. Uh, Peter has written this letter with the express purpose that we would stand firm in the true grace of God. Now that's the burden of this book, that we would stand firm in the true grace of God. And why do we need this call to stand firm because we have an adversary who is tirelessly working to take us down. That's what verses 8 through 9 was about, uh, the, the one who's trying to take us down. Back in uh, uh, chapter 5 and verse 8, lets us know, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is trying to tear you down, but you're to resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We have an enemy who's bent on snarling and sniffing and swallowing down the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan is all about deconstructing your faith. And if you want to uh, deconstruct your faith, Satan will be more than happy to help you in that effort. He's in the deconstruction and demolition business and he will attempt to tear you apart limb from limb and send a wrecking ball through your faith if he gets the chance. That's what Satan's will is for your life. He wants to snatch and grab the word that's been sown uh, because uh, uh, he's looking to uh, prevent people from believing and entering into the kingdom of God. That's what it talks about over in Mark chapter 4 and verse 15 where it says the word that is sown immediately, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. He wants to rip your faith to shreds, cause it to fail, and he will use suffering and threats and intimidation to dismember your faith. And that's exactly what was happening in Peter's temptation in the courtyard during Jesus' trial. Do you remember that? Uh, when the bystanders came up and Peter said in Matthew 26, surely you too, actually the bystanders said, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. What, what do you think was, was happening to Peter at that moment? Sa Satan was after his faith. He was trying to shred his faith. What do you think that was all about? Satan was trying to snatch his faith away, sift him like wheat. But why didn't Peter ultimately fail? It's because the Lord was the one who was interceding for him. 
praying for his faith. And that's true of every believer. All, all believers have a, a genuine faith that will not fail. So as, as much as Satan may try, he cannot eventually snatch away the faith of a true believer. Uh, but if you're on the edge, he'll definitely snatch that away. <laughs> if if you're, you're trying to approach the kingdom, he'll definitely snatch that away. The, the, the word that was sown in your heart, he'll, he's looking to snatch away the faith of those who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's Satan's will for your life. But what's God's will for your life? Satan's trying to tear down and God is building up. That's what verses 10 through 11 were about. And this is just review. While Satan is busy trying to tear our faith down, the Lord is busy building our faith up. Ultimately, our confidence is in the Lord who will cause us to stand. Amen. Jesus is the one, the Lord is the one who causes us to stand. Last week, we're reminded of that in verse 10, uh, where it says that the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And all of those words, perfect, confirm, strengthen, establish, they were just used as a, a way to reinforce the spiritual stability that we have in Christ, the security that we have. Even in the, the, the midst of Christian suffering, this is what, what God is doing. God will perfect you so that you won't fall apart. Now, the word perfect was used for mending a net, resetting a broken bone. It's God himself who will bind you up and put you back together again. And we know that Peter was genuine because the Lord restored him. He put him back together. He mended him. He restored his faith. And the same is true of every believer that the Lord will restore you. Uh, when you're feeling weak, when you're feeling like your, your strength is gone, the Lord will pull you back together again. When, when you feel like your faith is fraying, that the Lord will mend you back. God will perfect us. God will also confirm us so that we won't fall over. He perfects us so that we won't fall apart. He confirms us so that we won't fall over. That word confirm was used in construction. It means to be fixed, to be firm, to be resolute, even in the face of incredible opposition the same word that was used for the, uh, the Lord's determination to go to the cross, to go to the crucifixion. We can have a firm resolve under fire. God will also strengthen you so that you won't fall down. Uh, that third word, strengthen, was used for internal strength, fortification. Colossians 1 and 11 says that we're strengthened with uh, all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. And that fourth word, God will establish you so that you won't fall away. That word established is a word that's used for a firm foundation. In uh, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 25, it was used for the wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. And it's the Lord who gives our, our faith a, a solid footing so that when you feel like the bottom's going to fall out on you, he's the one who keeps you from being washed away in the flood. That's what God is doing. And God will do that even through our suffering. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a charge to keep. God is building up our faith. That's, that's true. But it doesn't mean that we don't still have a charge to keep. Uh, uh, as uh, uh, Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4 and verse 7, that we still have a fight to win, that we still have a, a course to finish, that we still have a faith to keep. And verses 12 through 14 is all about what, what we're called to do. We're commanded to keep faith, to stand firm in the grace of God. We have a charge to keep. Last week, we uh, were reminded in that illustration of Acts chapter 27, where God promised that 
all the men on the ship going to Rome as Paul was on the ship, that uh, he let them know that they would be saved. God told them that they would all be saved. But that promise from God, and Paul believed in it, believed in it absolutely. He says that, that he believed that it would happen exactly like God told him it would. But he also warned the members on board the ship that unless they all remained on board, they would not be saved. So God promised that they would be saved. That's security. But they also had to remain on board if they wanted to be saved. And that's perseverance. Both were true. Both were true. Eternal security was true. Perseverance of the saints is true, to put it in theological terms. They work together. And this is Peter's call for us to persevere. Stand firm in the grace of God. Yes, the Lord is holding you. The Lord is strengthening you. The Lord will keep you. But you still have a responsibility to keep trusting, to keep believing, to keep standing firm. Remain on board the ship. Or as Jesus puts it in John 15 and verse 6, abide in me. Abide in me. John 15 verse 6 says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. We need to abide in him. We need to remain on board. We need to stand firm. But none of that language calls into question our eternal security. Because as we just sang earlier, that it is God who abides with us. God abides in us. We still abide in him, but he also abides in us to make sure that our faith will not fail. But he still calls on us to believe, to trust. 1 Peter 1 verse 5 says we're protected by the power of God. We understand that. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 8 and 9 says God will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We understand that God will finish what he started on Philippians 1, 6. And in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, it says, therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we're secured for the day of salvation by the power of God. But here's the question. What does a person who is protected by the power of God look like? What, what does that kind of person look like? He looks like somebody who's resisting the devil, abiding in Christ, and standing firm in the grace of God. That's what that person looks like. The person that God is protecting looks like a person who is abiding in him. And the scriptures command us to abide in him, to abide in him. Uh, Burkauer in his uh, Faith and Providence says this, faith itself can do nothing else than listen to those admonitions and so travel the road of abiding in him. What does that mean? It means a true believer will follow Jesus Christ. A true believer will follow. And these admonitions in Scripture for us to stand firm, to abide in him, to, to stand firm in the grace of God, that's what distinguishes a true believer from a false professor. Or as Jesus says in uh, John 10 and verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Those who truly belong to me, they follow me. We, we have to follow because we're sheep. So it's not the obedience that makes you one of a sheep. But if you're a sheep, you will follow in obedience. You got to get the order right. Because I'm a sheep, I follow. Because I'm a sheep, I stand firm. Because God holds me, I hold on to him and I do obey those commands. Who I am precedes what I do. And it's only because I belong to God 
and he's holding me, then I'm able to stand firm and hold on to him. The commands of God reveal my condition. So true believers will find in 1 Peter uh, a word that's strengthening, even though it might be a difficult word to hear. It's a word of exhortation. That's what Peter calls it. I'm exhorting you. He says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying. It's a brief word, even though we've taken a a while to, to go through it. It's a brief word. It's not saying that it's uh, brief just by the space that it, that it takes to, to write, uh, but it's brief because there's so much more that he could have said. There's so much more that Peter could have said. But uh, what he said has been powerful and instructive, hasn't it? Let's uh, read our text and jump into this final section of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 12. It says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Why don't we uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you, Lord, and my Father, we are so grateful for your word, that your your word is, is rich, that your word is powerful, that your word is sufficient. My Father, that this is the, the necessary word. Everything that we need for life and godliness is found in your truth. Uh, so, Father, I do pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to understand uh, what you've given to us today in, in this epistle. And, uh, Father, that as we uh, continue to, uh, uh, to learn from, from Peter, uh, Lord, that you would help us to, to stand firm in the, in the grace of God. And, uh, Father, I pray that you would help me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The main idea that's uh, communicated in this final greeting is found in verse 12, as we've already said. Uh, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And uh, that's the purpose behind the, the entire epistle. It's, it's a testimony and an exhortation. Uh, I'm exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Uh, a testimony is a declaration of truth. I'm bearing witness that this is true, that this is the true grace of God. And it's also an exhortation. It's an, an appeal based on the truth. It's a call to action. Based on what is true, I'm calling you to action. I'm calling you to do something. And that's what Peter's been doing throughout this entire letter. He's been bearing witness to the truth and calling action based upon that truth. And what is that truth that he witnesses to and he calls us to? It's all about the grace of God. And all we need to do is think about uh, where we've been uh, in First Peter to remind ourselves about the, the grace of, of God that was on display throughout the book. And uh, this will be a, a short review of the entire book of First Peter. So if you want an outline of the book of First, First Peter, here it is. First Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 12. In that section, we learn about the saving grace of God, God's saving grace. The grace of salvation is mentioned explicitly in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, verse 9, verse 10. And uh, we find a number of other synonyms for salvation as well. But specifically in verse 10, if you uh, look back at chapter 1 and verse 10, Peter says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. So so here he speaks about this salvation. Uh, And this salvation is... An undeserved gift. That's what uh, uh, the, the word grace means. Uh, when we think about the uh, salvation that, that comes through grace down in, in verse 10, it says prophesied of the grace uh, that would come to you. And uh, the verse before speaks about the salvation of your souls. So this grace that comes is the, the grace of salvation. In the Old Testament, 
prophets only saw in part what we enjoy in great detail concerning the grace of salvation that we find in Jesus Christ. The the Old Testament prophets have been described as uh, men walking into a dimly lit room uh, when they made their prophecies. They were feeling around uh, some of the prophecies that they made, made out the basic shapes, the features of their prophecies, but they didn't have all the details to fill it in. They, They knew truth, but they didn't know all that would be filled into that truth. They didn't know the specific person. They didn't know the specific time. And the coming of Jesus was described as the dawning of light. You know, the the light has come in. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 16 says, The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and that light is a reference to Jesus Christ. And the, the grace of God that was displayed in the Word made flesh was absolutely beyond description, beyond anything that the Old Testament prophets uh, could have written about. The Word made flesh brought the great light. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, and verse 17, it says that Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father. Such an utterance as this was made by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And in uh, verse 18 of that same chapter, it says, We ourselves heard his utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We saw him. We beheld him. We beheld the glory of the Son of God. And in John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Simeon, when he only held the infant Jesus in his hands, he says this in Luke chapter 2 and verse 30. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This is it. This is what I've been waiting for. This is what I was anticipating. And finally, it's here. And for those of us who've been born again, we've entered into the light of that salvation. We're not like the Old Testament uh, saints who are looking forward to what is to come and trying to figure out, you know, who is this going to be? What time is he going to come? We are the beneficiaries of the one who has already come and shown up. We, we have seen his light. We have beheld his glory through the written word of God. And that's what Paul prays, that our eyes would be open to the glory that, that we behold in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18, uh, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And Peter says that, that these things that the, the prophets prophesied about, that they, they wondered about, you know, who's the person, who's the time? He, he, he says that this is the salvation that we have and even angels are stooping to look into what we have. Even, even the angels, they, they've never experienced God's grace. The, the holy angels don't need grace because they've never sinned. The unholy angels will never experience grace because they won't receive it. Either way, the angels know nothing about grace experientially. So, so they, they, they stoop to look into what we have. There, there's something that we have that the angels are stooping to look into. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 12, it says that this, this grace of salvation that we receive, that even the angels long to look into these things. When Adam and Eve sinned, what the angels probably expected was just a, a swift judgment. God said that they would die, and let's back up, you know, watch the fire show, watch the fireworks happen. You know, God says, this is it. But what happens? Adam and Eve sin, transgress against the law of God, and what happens? You know, they're still alive? What are you talking about? I know what happened when we sinned. (laughs) You know, when the angels sinned, we were kicked out. Even the the thought arising in our minds when we're kind of thinking about a rebellion, those angels were kicked out. 
And now you have these guys living on earth under this grace of God. They're not dying in the, the way that we would expect them to. I mean, this, this is a, something that we don't understand, so they're stooping to look into this gift that we have. And the precious value of the gift is often uh, uh, understood by the level of interest that's taken in that gift. You know, somebody said that there's a diamond around here somewhere, so there's a, a value on that. People want to find out who that is. I won't tell you, you can find out. Do you, do you value the gift of your salvation? Prophets searched it out. The angels scoped it out. But we're the recipients of this living hope. Do we stand firm in it? Do you, do you embrace that salvation? Do you stand firm in it? Do you understand the glory of what you possess? That's our salvation grace, saving grace. Number two, chapter one, verses 13 through chapter two and verse 12. Here we learn about the sanctifying grace of God, the, the grace that conforms us to holy obedience. Look at uh, chapter one, starting at verse 13. It says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And in this section here, it's all about our obedience, our conduct, our behavior, our holiness, it shows up repeatedly throughout this, this section. This is a grace of God as well, a sanctifying grace. Because the obedience that we offer to the Lord is rooted in who he's made us to be. So when God is calling us to be sanctified, it's because of what he's already created within us. So that we can be sanctified. In, in chapter 1 and verse 14 it says, As obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. So, so, so you're, you've been made children, and now you can walk in obedience because of what you've been made to be. J.I. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christian, uh, Christianity, excuse me, he says, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If you really want to know, how, how much do I value my Christianity? How much do you value being a child of God? How much do you value knowing that God is my father, Abba, Father, that I can call him Father? You know, in 1 John, uh, John says, you know, what, from what country does this come from? Behold how great a love that God would love us with, that we would be called children of God. I can't get over this fact. So, so we've been made children, and now we can walk in obedience to him. In uh, verse 18, if you look down there in verse 18, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. We, we've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and that word uh, uh, redeemed, redemption, uh, speaks more than just uh, about a rescue. You know, uh, some people may rescue you, but they don't have to pay anything for it. When the, the word redemption is used, it's saying that I've rescued you, but I've had to pay a price in order to rescue you. And this is what God has done for us. He's purchased us with the precious blood of his son. We're redeemed. We're children. We've also been born again in chapter 1 and verse 22 and 23. You've been born again. You've been given new life. Then if you look down in chapter 2 and verse 9, it gives us a list of uh, just uh, uh, titles that are given to us as believers. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Uh, we, we've been entered, we've entered into this relationship and it's all of God's mercy. It's all of his grace. And our obedience to Christ is by the grace of Christ. We are and we, uh, uh, we believe um, and therefore we can practice and do because of what we are, because of who we trusted in. Now we can actually walk in obedience to him. This is a sanctifying grace of God. And since we're God's possession, uh, God is the one who makes us holy. We can't make ourselves holy. If you look in the Old Testament, uh, there were many things that were considered holy, set apart for God's use. Uh, tabernacles, temples, mountains, sacrifices, priests, prophets, people. But none of those things were holy just because people called them holy. It's because God designated them as holy. And God has called us holy and sets us apart for his use to walk in obedience to him. And if somebody can get me a, a tissue, I'd appreciate it. It's, it's, it got warm in here today, didn't it? <laughs> it, got, it got warm. We're grateful for the, the weather change, aren't we? But if you're going to be a holy people, it's because God has called you to be a holy people. Number three, this is the third section in 1 Peter, beginning in chapter 2, verse 13. 2.13 through chapter 3 and verse 12. Thanks, brother. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 13 through uh, chapter 3 and verse 12, we learn about the grace of submission. The grace of submission. We could call it a serving grace. Starting in uh, chapter 2 and verse 13, look at what it says here. It says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. That word uh, submit that's used, we've seen that before, hupotasso, means to, to come underneath a rank, uh, to, uh, to, to, to be in line, to fall in line. And it's used for uh, a submission to, to masters in verse 18 of chapter 2, used of submission of wives in chapter 3 and verse 1. It's used of younger men submitting to elders in chapter 5 and verse 5. And in all of these relationships, government, family, employment, church, God requires submission to authority. It's not a universal submission. It's not an ultimate submission because God reserves that for himself. Uh, but when we can submit out of fear and out of reverence for God, the Bible lets us know that he gives us grace to submit. Look at uh, chapter 2 and verse 20. It says, For what credit is there? If when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. That, that word for favor is the Greek word charis. It's grace. You find grace with God. God is not ignorant of uh, the position that you may find yourself in, whether it's the, the country that you live in, uh, the spouse that you're married to, the job that you're, you're working on, the church that you're a member of. None of those situations are, are perfect. And in each of these situations, we can find ourselves being called to submit to things that we might find unreasonable. And in each one of these cases, it's important that we examine the scriptures to make sure that our submission uh, doesn't violate any principles from God's word, that it's uh, any matters of obedience that we are submitting to God and that we avoid the violation of our conscience. Uh, but outside of those areas, the, the Lord calls us to submit. And what does he promise us in those cases? He promised us that we would find grace. We would find the favor of God. God rewards it, and he will give you the strength to endure it. And then finally, the, the last section of First Peter starts at chapter 3 and verse 13. Chapter 3 and verse 13 through the end of the book. And here we learn about the sustaining grace of God. The sustaining grace of God for suffering. 
And the, the theme of suffering for righteousness' sake is the, the overarching theme of the entire epistle. In the space of only five chapters, Peter uses the, the word for suffering 16 times, almost twice as much as any New Testament book. Many words related to suffering, like uh, rejected, reviled, slandered, harshly treated, distressed, intimidated. Like I said, it's like the, the shadow that you can't get rid of as long as you're standing in the sun. And as long as we're standing in the, the Son of God, we won't get rid of suffering. And in chapter 3 and verse 13, it says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. You're, you're blessed. This is what, what the Lord says about us. You know, everybody wants to talk about, you know, blessings, you know, blessings on blessings on blessings. Unless it's wrapped up in the package of suffering, right? You know, that's when people don't want to talk about blessings too much. Over in chapter 4 and verse 13, it says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You know, we, we all want the, the spirit of God to rest on us, but not if it's associated with being reviled for the name of Christ. You know, that's when we don't want to talk about the, you know, the Holy Spirit resting on us. Let the power of the Holy Ghost rest on me, you know, unless it's connected with suffering. And how many people want victory over Satan? You know, shake, 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 shake the devil off. In the name of Jesus, shake the devil off. Satan, I rebuke you. Shake the devil off. It's not that easy to shake him off. Peter talks about the victory over Satan in chapter 1, chapter, uh, in, uh, chapter 5 and verse 9. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And how does this resisting of Satan happen? It's through suffering. You're experiencing suffering, but you're going to have to remain in that, stand firm in that, and that's how you deal with the enemy, that you stand firm in it. In suffering, don't allow the suffering to, 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 to move you off your position. You stand in that. That's how you resist Satan. It comes through suffering. And it's only after you've suffered for a little while. In verse 10, in chapter 5, it says, After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And when Peter talks about standing firm in the true grace of God, he's carrying all of that truth along with it. So when we get to, to chapter 5, and Peter finally says, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. He's pulling all of that context back in with it. This is the grace of God that I'm talking about. What, what grace are you talking about? I'm talking about the grace of salvation. Don't let anybody make you lose sight of the, the greatness of your salvation, the value of your salvation. That this salvation came at a great cost. It's so glorious that prophets and angels are trying to peek into what you have. Don't fall away from your salvation. Be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. When he says, stand firm in the true grace of God, he's telling us to stand firm in the, the grace of our sanctification. Understanding that we're children of God, that you've been redeemed by God, that you're born again, that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Don't allow fleshly lusts to wage war against your soul and make you forget whose child you are. Do you understand that you're, you're the child of the king, 
a child of the judge who will judge all the earth. Don't allow this world to pull you away from your confidence in Jesus Christ. Don't allow this world to pull you away. Stand firm in the grace of God. He's telling them to stand firm in the grace of submission. Don't allow submission to the government, family, employment, or the church cause you to fall over. You can stand firm, resolute in your convictions in the midst of opposition. Even while you're being opposed by those around you, you can be firm and not violate the principles of God's word. Don't allow that to cause you to collapse in your faith. Don't allow that to cause you to to, to think that I've got to question the grace of God. Does God know what I'm putting up with here? Does God know what I'm putting up with in the home, on the job, in 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 the country that I live in? Does God know about this? Don't allow that to move you from your position in Christ. Stand firm in the grace of God. And Peter is telling us to stand firm in the sustaining grace of God through suffering. You may be doing the right thing and you're suffering for it. You're wondering how long you'll be able to hold up under that pressure. You've been rejected, reviled, slandered, harshly treated, insulted, intimidated, troubled, experiencing difficulty. You're you're put under fire. You might even be fired. (laughs) Maybe you've denied the Lord at some point. You know, because you're, you're trying to, to hold on to some position. But, but here's the message of Peter. He says you don't have to fall apart. <laughs> you don't have to fall apart. God himself will bind you up. God himself will keep you from breaking apart. You can stand firm in the grace of God, and that's what you're commanded to do. Because if you're in his grace, you will not finally be lost. That's the message of 1 Peter. Stand firm in the faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way. They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. God will confirm your faith. Those who are in Christ will be confirmed all the way to the end. Stand firm in the true grace of God. Commit yourself to what is true. And that's what we're called to do. Endure to the end. That's the call of 1 Peter. Endure to the end. I know you're experiencing suffering, but you're to endure to the end. John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks about, uh, I've made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I've preached to you, which also you've received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I've preached to you. Over in uh, Colossians, why don't you flip over there just real quick so we can see this. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 22. Actually, I'll start at verse 21. Colossians 1, starting at verse 21. Paul here says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This is what God is doing. But look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, Firmly established, steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And Peter joins these other witnesses to say that you're called to stand. You need, you need to stand. You need to abide. You, you, this is still a command. Don't, don't let go of your faith. You have a responsibility. But here's the final encouragement from First Peter. He lets us know that you're not called to do this alone. And this is the final benediction 
and we have a host of spiritual encourages, uh, encouragers for our faith. In addition to Peter himself, he also lets us know that there are some other witnesses who are encouragements as well. As, as well. Number one, we have Silvanus. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. And there's a little debate about who Silvanus is, but Peter mentions his name as if the believers who were scattered all over uh, the uh, Asia Minor would have known him. So, so who is this Silvanus that everybody would have known? There's a little doubt that this is the same Silvanus who's also known as Silas, who would have been a traveling companion to Paul and one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Silas is actually believed to be a, a Hebrew form of the name uh, related to the, uh, the word for uh, Saul, related to the name Saul, and the, the Greek form of the name would have been Silvanus. And if you flip back to uh, Acts chapter 15, we're actually introduced uh, to Silas for the first time. Acts chapter 15. If you remember the, the context here, Acts chapter 15, uh, Paul and Barnabas were ministering in Antioch, and some men came down from Judea, teaching the disciples that unless they were circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, they could not be saved. And obviously, uh, Paul and Barnabas were quick to confront this perversion of the gospel. And uh, because these brothers came down from Judea, the brothers at Antioch thought it would be a good idea to send Paul and Barnabas back up to Jerusalem to settle the debate. Look at uh, chapter 15 and verse 10. It says, now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Who's the one that's saying that? That's Peter. <laughs> Peter Peter's standing up in the Jerusalem council and saying that, uh, that we, 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 we aren't trying to bring the Gentiles back under the yoke of uh, submission to the, the law of Moses. So, so here they go up to the, uh, the, the elders at Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas are sent back to Antioch with the official word from this uh, Jerusalem council. But they were also sent with a delegation from Jerusalem. And who were the, the men who represented the elders, the elders at Jerusalem, look down at verse 22. It says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Look down at verse 32. It says, Judas and Silas also being prophets themselves encouraged and strengthened the brethren with the lengthy message. So Silas is this faithful brother who's trusted to represent the true grace of God to Antioch. You'll also remember that uh, Silas became one of Paul's traveling companions who faced imprisonment, persecution. And even after being thrown into prison at Philippi, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them before they were, you know, bust out of the, 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 the prison. So this was a man who was trusted by the church. He was sent as an official delegate from the Jerusalem church, trusted by Paul to minister across Asia Minor as he traveled with him and uh, some of his missionary journeys. And there are some who believe that Peter might have also used Silas as a kind of secretary, you know, known as a, a menuensis, uh, to, to write this letter of First Peter. Uh, but it's also possible that he could have just been the one who delivered the letter of First Peter. Back in First uh, Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you. 
And some take that I have written to you uh, to mean that Silas was actually the one who, who penned the, the letter of 1 Peter. Uh, but there are other explanations uh, for, for that. Um, there's those who believe that Silas was a, a kind of secretary, but we also know that Silas was sent as a delegate back in chapter 15, and he didn't write the letter from uh, those in, in, uh, in uh, the Jerusalem church. There's also evidence that in Greek literature where the, the phrase I have written is used, it's often used for just somebody who was sent to deliver the letter, not the person who actually wrote the letter. You know, so there's actually a, a letter by Ignatius who was written to the church at Rome, and he says, I'm writing these things to you through the blessed Ephesians. You know, so not saying that the Ephesians wrote the letter, but that he sent the letter through the Ephesians to the church at Rome. So there's arguments against Silas being the, the one who, who wrote the letter. And most often when people say that they believe that Silas wrote the letter, what they're saying is that um, we believe that the Greek is too polished for a fisherman to write. And uh, I apologize to all the fishermen out there who uh, these scholars believe can't write a letter. Uh, but, uh, but that's what most people say. It's like, you know, the, the Greek is just too, too polished for it to be written by a, a fisherman, you know. And if Peter really needed that much help, do you think the Holy Spirit could have helped him uh, to write a letter? Uh, so I don't see a, a need for Silas to be the person who wrote First Peter, who helped Peter write uh, the book of First Peter. Uh, it's not necessary to see him as a, a secretary, but uh, we do know that he was trusted as a person who would deliver the letter of First Peter. And he did the same thing in Acts chapter 15. He took what Peter said, you know, brought it as a, a delegate to uh, uh, the, the church at Antioch and represented the apostles to that church there. And I believe that Silas is doing the same thing here. And Peter says, this is a trusted brother. He's faithful. He'll, he'll encourage you. He knows what it's like to suffer. He, this is the same man who was in the Philippian jail. He, he knows what it's like to be in your shoes. And he is a faithful and trusted brother. He can be sent to encourage you. Number two, also in, uh, in verse 13, we have another encouragement here. It says, she who is in Babylon. You see that there in verse 13? She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And uh, Peter uses a feminine term here to speak about the one who was in Babylon. And uh, some people imagine that maybe Peter was speaking about his wife as she who was in Babylon. But that would be a strange way to talk about your wife, you know, she who is in Babylon. And I don't think it would be much of a compliment uh, to speak about her without referring to her personally. You know, why not say Sylvanus who's from Babylon or Mark who's from Babylon? Why is it she who is in Babylon? Not, not a great way to talk about your wife. The best way to understand this, the she who is in Babylon is actually a reference to the church. Uh, the church is a feminine term. Ecclesia is a feminine term. You know, sometimes, uh, the, 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 uh, even today, we'll speak about the church as a she, because she is the bride of Christ, right? Uh, in the song, the, the church is one foundation. Uh, we sing these lyrics, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, with his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. What, what's that song talking about? It's talking about the church. She who has been bought by Christ. And even the gathering of the church, the, the brotherhood, is a feminine term. So it's much, much better to understand uh, this feminine term being used as a reference to the church. She who is in Babylon, the church. But why Babylon? Now, there's actually no evidence that uh, Peter was literally in Babylon, uh, the ancient capital of the Babylonian Empire in Mesopotamia was basically desolate at the time that Peter wrote this letter. 
toward the middle of the, the first century, the Jewish population deserted it. And in the second century, it was desolate. Uh, there was another Babylon in Egypt, but that was a small military outpost. So why, why mention Babylon? There's no, no evidence that Peter was in any of those places. So why does he speak about the church in Babylon? It's because Babylon was a code word for the city that was functioning like Babylon. And what city was functioning like Babylon? It was Rome. Rome is the Babylon that Peter's referring to here. And there's a comparison made between the superpower of Babylon and the superpower of of Rome. And just like Babylon oppressed the people of God, Rome was oppressing the people of God. And just like Babylon destroyed the temple, the Jewish temple, Rome would destroy the Jewish temple. And not only that, Christian history consistently places Peter and Mark in Rome during this time and states that Peter wrote his letter from Rome. So the church at Rome is what he's referring to, sending their greetings. You know, the she who is in Babylon, you know, code word for Rome, sends you their greetings. And the church at Rome was actually ground zero for the persecution of the church. Uh, Later on, uh, Nero invented some of the, the most cruel tortures to persecute the believers who were at Rome. Invented deaths to persecute the believers at Rome. You know, put believers in animal skins and had them chased by wild beasts, uh, had them set on fire to light his gardens. I mean, that's the kind of thing that would happen at Rome. And Peter says, the church at Rome, she who is in Babylon, also sends you their greetings. If you're struggling, if you know you're going through persecution, just know that there's other brothers and sisters who are going through the same thing and even worse than you are. They send you their greetings. And they're the fellow elect. They're elect with you, chosen together with you. And, uh, you know, even today I'm reminded of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine because we're, we're one with them, one with our brothers and, and sisters. They're also with our brothers and sisters in Russia. Uh, we're all one in the spirit. We're one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored, right? Our suffering brothers and sisters are an encouragement to us. Uh, just uh, uh, last week, received a, a missionary update from a uh, missionary in Ukraine. And listen, listen to this. It said, this past weekend, those sheltered in the church and TMAI seminary building held their normal Sunday worship service, despite the strict curfew to stay at home. Listen to this. An 80-year-old woman walked 45 minutes to the church. On the way, she was stopped by a Ukrainian soldier and was asked why she was on the streets during the curfew. She says, I'm going to church. She said, the church must remain open. There must be the worship of God. And the soldier let her go to be with her fellow believers. And the pastor and the missionary of that church told us, thank God he has us here. <laughs> that's, that's an encouragement, isn't it? And a rebuke that this 80-year-old woman is willing to walk 45 minutes to get to church in the middle of, you know, bombs going off in the same place that she's living. But she wanted to be with the people of God. What a what a rebuke that is to us. And what an encouragement to know that there are brothers and sisters who are gathered together now on Sunday in the midst of a war <laughs> because the praise of God must go up. That's an encouragement. And as Peter writes from Rome, he says, your fellow brothers and sisters send you greeting. That would have been an encouragement. Mark, he mentions as well uh, in verse 13, he says that the she was in Babylon, chosen together, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. And when you think about Mark, that might not seem as an immediate encouragement. Uh, the first time we hear about 
Mark, also known as John Mark. Uh, he was at his mother's house in Jerusalem, which was a, a house of prayer. And uh, in this prayer meeting, they're praying for uh, Peter to be released, if you remember that, in Acts chapter 12. So he had a connection with Peter, uh, even back then in the, the early stages of the church. Uh, in Acts chapter 12, we meet him again. He's full of potential. His cousin Barnabas was a leader in the, the early church. So Paul and Barnabas were uh, getting ready to, to leave for Antioch for their first missionary journey. And guess who they decided to take along? They, they take Mark along. He was considered a, a valuable member of the team. But very early on in that mission, just, just barely making it across the small island of Cyprus, their, their first stop on the missionary journey, John Mark decides to turn tail and head back to Jerusalem. And we're not given much explanation for this. It simply says in uh, Acts chapter 13 and verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Why did John Mark leave the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas? If you read the narrative, they haven't even experienced persecution at this point, and John Mark already decides to leave. What, what happened? What was he... Was he frightened by just the possibility that there might be persecution and he turned around? Did he feel unprepared? Was he, was he just homesick? I mean, we don't know, but he deserted Paul and Barnabas on the missionary journey. Actually, uh, flip back to Acts chapter 15. You guys already know the story, but I uh, just want to remind you of it. Acts chapter 15, Paul and, and Barnabas returned to Antioch and they start thinking about the churches that they ministered to and after some days, and uh, if you look at verse 36 in Acts chapter 15, look at verse 36. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul, insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work, and there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of God. You know, you think about Mark, he's, he's hardly the kind of model of faithfulness. But isn't it encouraging that you don't always have to be what you once were? <laughs> and that's the case with, with Mark. Just like, like Peter was restored to ministry, Mark was restored to ministry. Even after he destroyed his testimony, dishonored Christ, God magnificently worked in his life and finished the work that he started with Mark. To the point that in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 11, at the end of Paul's life, Paul can say, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Uh, Mark had turned around to such a degree that Paul says, I can use him now. I can trust him now. I can put him back into service. And Peter calls Mark his son in the faith. And Peter, through Mark, penned the gospel of Mark that we have in our Bibles even to today. And what a wonderful change happened in Mark's life. So he became faithful. And he's an example to the church that even if you fall, you can get back up. That the Lord can pick you back up again and use you for service. So Mark would have been an encouragement for this church to hear about. And then finally... There's a final encouragement that comes to this church, and it's the encouragement that comes from one another. Look at uh, chapter 5 and verse 14. It says, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. The final 
encouragement for the church is one another. You know, the, the church is to greet one another, to be encouraging one another in the faith, to press on in the true grace of God and to stand firm in it. And I've mentioned this before, but do you realize how often this command to greet one another shows up in Scripture? It, it is all over the place. In uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, all the brethren greet you, greet one another with the holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 12, greet one another with the holy kiss. Philippians 4, 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Colossians 4, 15, greet the brethren. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, greet all the brethren with the holy kiss. 2 Timothy 4.19, greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Vinisiphorus. Uh, Titus 3.15, greet those who love us in the faith. Hebrews 13.24, greet all your leaders and all the saints. 3 John in verse 15, peace be to you, the friends greet you, greet the friends by name. All over we're told, greet one another, greet one another, greet one another. And uh, my question for you, Baltimore Bible Church, is do you greet one another? <laughs> we know one person's greeting everybody. Do you greet one another? Do you seek to greet every saint? I mean, that's, that's what the scripture says right here. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.21. Do, do you greet friends by name? Do you greet them warmly? Do you greet them with a, a brotherly affection? And, and I want to make sure that I'm clear here. The kiss of love was a cultural expression. So don't think that you're disobeying the will of God if you're not following the letter of the law, okay? Uh, uh, we, we don't need to break out the chapstick and pucker up, okay? <laughs> I actually found, the, I found the, the words of Hippolytus of Rome, who was a second century uh, theologian, very instructive regarding the way the early church practiced this. Listen to this. He said, only believers shall salute one another with the kiss of love, but men with men and women with women a man shall not salute a woman. So in order to protect the purity and the practice of the church, they purposefully separated the practice between men and women. And we're likely thinking of, uh, you know, kisses on the lips, but it was kisses on the hand, kisses on the cheek, kisses on the forehead. In addition to that, new converts who are still in the process of examining their conversion. Uh, again, uh, uh, Hippolytus says this, they must not give the kiss of peace for their kiss is not yet pure. <laughs> you know, make sure they're believers first before you allow them to start, you know, kissing one another in the Lord. So, so there were boundaries in the early church. You know, maybe like our, our modern, uh, you know, halfway sideways hug that we give in the church, right? You know, hey, brother, I love you, love you, man. You know, or that we give the sisters, you know, hey, sister, you know, love you, sis, right? So we want to make sure that we respect one another, that we're not giving an occasion for our good to be evil spoken of. Uh, so we want to make sure that we're protecting the, the purity of the church. I remember uh, there was this one uh, pastor who came from Africa, and he said, you know, back in Africa, you know, the brothers would walk hand in hand, you know, just walking hand in hand with one another. And uh, he had been in the States for a while, and his brother was coming from Africa, you know, to, uh, to visit with them. So he goes to pick him up from the airport, and he says, hey, brother! And he grabs his hand, and he's just walking hand in hand with his brother in the airport. And he says, hey, bro, we can't do that here. That's... You know, back back home, we can do that, but not, not here. And he's like, why not? What's wrong with holding your hand? You know, you're my brother. You're my brother. And it's like, over here, you, you, people think you're funny if you do that. <laughs> so uh, he's let his hand go. <laughs> but uh, 
There's, there, there were boundaries in the early church, and they didn't want to give the wrong impression to people. You know, that we're not, we're not crossing a line. We're, we're greeting the saints, but we're doing it in a respectful way. So, so let's not miss the point. We're to greet the saints. We're to greet all the saints. We're to greet them by name. We're to greet them with brotherly affection, just putting all these verses together. Greet them with brotherly affection, and we could add to greet them with a purity of affection. So ask yourself this question. Do you regularly pass by people you don't know to get to the people that you do know? If that's the case in the church, you are disobeying this command. Are certain people here invisible to you? You don't even see them. If that's the case, you're disobeying this command. Do you regularly arrive to church late and leave early? Allowing no time for interaction with the body of Christ. You know, I just show up for the service and I'm I'm out before he says amen. If that's the case, you're being disobedient to this command. Because we're to greet one another. Do you regularly uh, arrive to church and you just walk on by people? Just walk on by. Just walk on by. Do you walk by people that you know are brothers and sisters in the Lord, and you refuse to extend a warm and brotherly greeting. If that's you, that's disobedience to this command. Because we're family, right? You, you don't just walk by your brothers and sisters and don't, don't greet them. We're, we're family. And that's the significance behind the kiss of love. It, it was used as a family greeting. People didn't greet everybody like this. This was reserved for friends and family. This is for a close sign of affection. This kiss of love was considered a, a sign of affection, familial affection, which is why it was so treacherous when Judas greeted Jesus with what? A kiss. Like, like Judas. This, this is what we reserve for friends and family. And are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Like that's how we're going to get down, Judas? You're going to betray me with a kiss. Show me the sign of affection. Show me that, that, hey, you're my brother. A close sign of affection, but he's betraying him with that sign of affection. In the family of God, we need to treat one another as family, right? In uh, 1 Peter 2.17, it says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. Do you love the brotherhood? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Does that describe you? 1 Peter 3 and verse 8, it says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly. We're brothers in Christ. We're brothers in Christ. Today we have a fellowship meal that's planned after our service, and I don't want you to go in there and look for somebody that you already know and sit down with them. I want you to find somebody that you don't know, somebody that's not in your small group, somebody that you're not already a personal close friend with, and sit with them and greet them. Actually, before you even get down there, greet them on the way there. (laughs) Greet somebody that you don't know because that's what you're called to do. We are the family of God, and we're called to greet one another. And finally, Peter ends his letter with this, Peace be to you all who are in Christ. And what, what stands out to me in this salutation is that this peace in Christ is not dependent on the outward circumstances, right? Because he's just told them that you're going to suffer. You're still going to suffer. Suffering isn't over with. 
So, so peace can't be connected to the absence of suffering. He says, peace be to you all who are in Christ. So what kind of peace does Christ give? Flip back to, to chapter 1, and this just brings us to the beginning of the book. Kind of the bookends of 1 Peter is this, this word of, of peace. Look at uh, chapter 1 in, in verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. How do we receive the grace and peace of the Lord in fullest measure? It's through the grace of salvation, which is what he talks about here. That we've been foreknown by the Father, that we're sanctified by the Spirit, that we obey Jesus Christ, we're sprinkled with his blood. Words that, that speak about our salvation. And it's in that relationship with God that we find peace. That, that we have peace with God. We don't make peace with God. God grants us peace. Peace with himself. How? Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That we don't stand before God with our sin standing in the way between us. But that we're reconciled to God through the blood of his son. And it's at the cross, if you want to talk about a kiss, kiss of peace, it was on the cross that justice and mercy kiss one another. And now we have peace with God, and God invites us into his family. We've been, we've been included into the family of God, and uh, we need to make sure that we're doing the same for one another in Christ. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had together. Uh, Father, we pray that you would uh, uh, use uh, this book, Lord, that you'd allow this book to continue to speak uh, to us even after we're uh, done with it. I pray that First Peter isn't done with us. Uh, Father, that we would continue to learn uh, from this epistle, Lord, and uh, that you would help us to heed the admonition that's given that we would stand firm in the grace of God. Father, I pray for uh, the fellowship meal that we'll have uh, just as we exit uh, this service. Uh, Lord, I do pray for uh, that meal and our time together uh, in it. Uh, Father, we pray for our members here, Lord, that they would uh, greet one another with a brotherly affection, Lord, because we are family in Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, those who uh, attend our church, Lord, that they uh, would know that they're included in a family, Lord. Uh, Father, that uh, they're amongst uh, people who, who love them, who care for them, who pray for them. And uh, Father, I pray that even now would be an expression uh, of that. Uh, Father, we uh, dedicate this uh, time to you, and uh, we pray that you would be uh, lifted up and honored uh, in our fellowship. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.